in Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were assembled. <coughs> and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet not even so did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he was silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his mantle and said, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council held a consultation. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate wondered. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man, uh, a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he was wont to do for them. And he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. <laughs> Thank you.
Now this <clears throat> evening we come to this second section um, of this subdivision, his supreme service and work. We have dealt with a record of Gethsemane, his agony in the garden, and his betrayal and arrest. Now we come this evening to the trial of the servant of the Lord, the trial of the servant of the Lord. Now, I don't know how far we shall get this evening. Um, I don't know whether we will be able to really actually start looking at these verses because I want to say a certain amount in the way of introduction to this whole matter of the trial of the servant of the Lord. Uh, these verses cover approximately eight hours of time, only eight hours. In fact, it's probable that it's less than eight hours because by eight o'clock Jesus was carrying his cross uh, up to Calvary uh, where at about nine o'clock he was executed. Um, so in fact, uh, somewhere from midnight till eight o'clock we had these eight hours and when you think of it, it is the average hours of sleep of the normal person. So think about that. Just eight hours of the night. From the, they cover, uh, really, from the moment when Christ was arrested at Gethsemane until he was sentenced to death by Pilate. They cover the trial of the servant of the Lord, firstly before the Sanhedrin, and then, secondly, before the Roman procurator. There's been very much discussion and controversy over uh, the trial of Christ. Every aspect of the trial has been made the subject of sustained and in some cases bitter debate. Do the accounts in the four Gospels tally or do they contradict each other? How legal was the Sanhedrin's sitting? Um, was it properly convened? Uh, were the trials genuine judicial processes? or totally illegal? Did Pilate officially acquit Christ or only deem him innocent before finally washing his hands of the whole affair and sentencing him uh, to death? Where and what was the praetorium? Where and what is the gabata, the pavement. Where was the high priest's residence? Where was the official meeting place of the Sanhedrin in which alone was it legal to convene meetings of the Sanhedrin? Did Annas and Caiaphas, the former high priest and the reigning high priest, share the same residence? Oh, the, the subjects for debate in this 
matter of the trial of Jesus a multitudinous. All the four Gospels agree in dividing the trial of Christ into two parts. The ecclesiastical, for want of a better word, the ecclesiastical trial, that is the religious trial, the trial before the Jewish authorities, before the temple authorities, Jewish establishment, and the civil trial, the trial before the Roman pro procurator, before Pontius Pilate. In that, all four Gospels absolutely uh, ag agree. It seems reasonably clear to me uh, to say, uh, taking the evidence from all the four Gospels, that both the ecclesiastical trial and the civil trial can be divided, both of them, into three. So, in fact, we have six parts. Now, I don't know whether you'll be able to see this. I've done it up here. And whether that's going to stand down or not, probably won't. Now, I don't know how many of you can see that. But the uh, trial before the Sanhedrin, the ecclesiastical trial, is divided into three, and the trial before Pontius Pilate is divided into three. Now, when you see this, all these so-called contradictions, all these so-called inconsistencies begin to fall into place. And we see uh, quite clearly um, the whole thing. First of all, in the trial before the Sanhedrin, there was the preliminary examination before Annas. Now that's only mentioned in John chapter 18 from verses 13 to 24 where we have a somewhat full account of what transpired before Annas, the high priest. Annas was probably the most powerful figure in the whole of Jewry at that time. He had been high priest himself from the year 7 to, to the year 14 after the birth of Christ, A.D., and had been deposed by the Romans. He had, however, managed to keep the high priesthood within his own immediate family. Five of his sons, one of his son-in-laws, that is, sons-in-law, uh, Caiaphas, and one grandson were all high priests. Whilst he was alive, now, this explains quite a lot. You see, uh, uh, the fact that they sometimes seem to almost refer to him as the high priest explains a lot. All the way through, be behind the whole thing, was this figure of Annas. Uh, I think you can see then that the family uh, of Annas was the most powerful family in the Sanhedrin, uh, and indeed in jury. It would appear that he examined Christ uh, in a preliminary way whilst the trusted members of the Sanhedrin were being called, uh, summoned to an unofficial night session. So that's the first, the preliminary examination before Annas. Then secondly, the unofficial session of the Sanhedrin um, which we have in these scriptures, um, this was uh, an unofficial meeting of the Sanhedrin, it being forbidden, in fact, to uh, 
uh, institute trial proceedings in the night hours. In fact, when we look at it, probably next week, we will discover that you are not only are not allowed to institute trial proceedings during the night hours, you are not allowed to have a trial of any kind on a feast day, and not even allowed to institute proceedings in the afternoon. So this, in fact, was an unofficial meeting of the Sanhedrin, summoned hastily together in just after midnight uh, uh, to find, as it were, to sort out a case against Christ which could be substantiated and which would mean that the verdict was absolutely definite. The third um, uh, trial, if you like, is the official trial before the Sanhedrin. Again, I've given you the scriptures for that. And this was summoned, we're told quite clearly, by, all, by most of the Gospels, at daybreak, in order to ratify the illegal session held during the night hours. Uh, there's a question, of course, as to whether this uh, uh, trial was, in fact, legal, but that we must leave to do when we come to it. The fact is that this was the official trial. They summoned the whole Sanhedrin together. All the work had been done during the night hours. They'd got it quite clear what the charge was. They'd changed it from one to another and finally decided on blasphemy where they felt they had absolutely cornered Christ. And uh, this was just an official full session of the whole Sanhedrin to ratify, to confirm the verdict and to give it all the appearance of legality. Now the trial before Pontius Pilate also falls into three. The problem is that both Matthew and Mark tend to look upon the first examination before Pilate and the second examination before Pilate as one movement, which in fact they are. It is Luke who tells us quite clearly that three times Pontius Pilate officially declared Christ acquitted. Not guilty, his verdict was, three times. And uh, he, he was then sent to Herod. Um, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate suddenly found out that Christ was a Galilean, that he'd spent most of his life in Galilee, and uh, just at that time, King Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he thought he'd got rid of a very thorny and complex problem. So he sent the Lord Jesus off to Herod to, for, for Herod to deal with anything, having declared him not guilty. Herod also found him not guilty and sent him back to um, Pilate, and then we have the second examination, which begins with uh, Pilate saying that both he and Herod had found Christ not guilty. When we see that, I think we begin to understand uh, a little more of the trial procedure. Um, I don't know whether I ought to say any more on there. Mark's record of these events takes no account of the preliminary examination before Annas, that is, the first one, only very lightly touches in one verse on the official trial before the Sanhedrin and dwells at length 
on the unofficial session of the Sanhedrin. In fact, Mark was right. It's following, of course, Peter's own witness. Uh, and what really Mark is saying is that the real skullduggery, for want of a better word, was all here. This is where the dirty work was done. You can almost dismiss the rest. Annas examined him to try and find out whether there were charges which could be substantiated. They would... Annas was a wily, wicked old man. And there's no doubt that he was the one who had his hand well and truly in getting witnesses uh, bought uh, for the job. And so we had the preliminary examination. They had so little time. We'll see that in a moment. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Mark dwells on this unofficial session because really, basically, that's where the charge against Christ was finally found, the one that they could substantiate and uh, uh, the um, verdict could be given uh, of guilty. He also does not mention the examination before Herod at all. He only speaks of the first examination and the second examination before Pilate, and he tends to run those together, looking upon them really as one movement, which is quite understandable they were. Uh, Pilate only sent uh, Christ off to Herod to try and get rid of him. In fact, uh, he, the Lord was brought back to Pilate and he had to take the matter up again and go straight on to, to its conclusion. For the servant of the Lord, these hours were no small physical or, or mental ordeal apart from the spiritual. <laughs> they were eight hours of minute cross-examination, eight hours of charges, of various witnesses saying this and that and then not being corroborated and therefore, according to Jewish law, uh, having to be dismissed. They were eight hours of being examined first by one, then by another, Annas, Caiaphas, uh, the whole Sanhedrin later, then later on Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate again. Hours of unending hearing. They were hours in which he was exposed to the venomous hatred of men who for years had had only one ambition, and that was to find some way of eradicating Christ altogether. Now they'd got him in their grip. Hours in which he became the object of buffoonery, of uh, uh, ribald jesting and horseplay on the part of ignorant and loutish men. Hours of humiliation in every way when he was made a kind of exhibit, a kind of spectacle, before, by slaves, by soldiers, and even by a king. They were hours of physical and mental ill-treatment, of mockery, of derision, of contempt, of spitting, which in the East is the way you show abhorrence, of being knocked about, hours which ended in a scourging which often in itself proved fatal. 
There are many examples in, uh, from the times of the New Testament of people who died under the scourging. Scourging was a great whip of many thongs where pieces of metal, sharp pieces of metal and sharp pieces of bone and stone were all tied in it. Um, this scourging was a fearful thing and often resulted in uh, death. There was in these hours no milk of human kindness, no single warm word of encouragement, no loving hand extended to help or to soothe. He was absolutely alone, utterly and terribly alone, within, within almost earshot one of his dearly loved disciples was denying and disowning him now to all that no small ordeal just left at that but to all that we must add the simple fact of physical fatigue and nervous exhaustion the anguish the agony in the garden of gethsemane had taken something out of Christ which was never put back. In all those hours from the Passover meal until he was executed, as far as we know, he never received a drop of drink and not a morsel of food. Now any one of you knows that if you go through a period of great physical uh, exertion or great nervous expenditure you almost immediately begin to feel thirsty and feel the need of food you must bear all this in mind when we say that this was no small physical or mental ordeal through which Christ passed apart from the spiritual Christ had in fact described these hours as your hour and the power of darkness. It is a, a precise description. You will find though that description in Luke 22 verse 53. It was at the end of the, just at the point of his arrest, when they came to him, he said, but this is your hour and the power uh, and the power's of darkness. I think that is a most precise um, description. 22:53. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth not, you, you, you stretched not forth your hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, the power of darkness, the authority of darkness. Your hour and the power of darkness. It was the time for evil men and for satanic power. That is an absolute description of the eight hours of his trial up to his execution. And indeed, of course, including his execution. Your hour 
and the power of darkness. Because whatever we may see of the physical or the mental, we have to understand that behind it all was the implacable hatred of a satanic hierarchy. They had done everything in their power from the, found, from the beginning of time, from the fall of man, right the way down through the history of mankind. They had done every single thing to frustrate God's plan of redemption, to frustrate altogether God's saving purpose for mankind. Oh, we could spend the whole evening talking about one account after another through the Old Testament where the enemy sought to eradicate, to destroy all possibility of a savior ever coming. That great battle found its climax in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have already looked at that. The climax of that battle in which all the powers of darkness sought in one way or another to deflect Christ from the purpose of God, to deflect him from Calvary, somehow to pressurize him. We are not told how, except that the very pressure made him sweat great drops like blood. And even an angel had to appear to strengthen him before he went through the severest part of that battle. But we have also seen that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, won the battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those wonderful words which speak of the triumph of the Son of God. Not, not what I will, but what thou wilt. That had marked the defeat, the final defeat of Satan and the absolute triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not to say that the cross was any the, the, uh, the less painful or that the conflict was not as great. For it seems to me that spirits are not just bits of mechanism. The devil is not some piece of machinery. He has injected into man the very same principle that is in himself. I! And there is nothing so blind as pride. There is nothing so stubborn and obstinate as pride. There is nothing so implacable as pride. There is nothing so hard, so assertive as pride. This world's history has furnished us many examples of pride. It seems to me that when the devil lost the battle in the garden of Gethsemane, he went berserk. As if he couldn't control himself any longer. And so we have, as it were, something almost going haywire in the unseen. As if the enemy realized the battle was lost, but he would do everything that his blinded prejudice 
and self-esteem, his, his self-centeredness would allow. Jesus summed it all up in these words. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The time for evil men to do their worst and the time for the venting of the implacable hatred and fury of the satanic hierarchy. But having said all that, we have to say that this was not, in fact, the trial of Christ. It was the trial of the Sanhedrin, and it was the trial of Pontius Pilate. It was not the trial of Jesus. It was the trial of the Jewish establishment, of the temple authorities, of the Roman procurator. It was not so much a trial of the servant of the Lord as a trial of a totally false concept of service. Let me explain lest you misunderstand me. It was not Christ who was in the dock in truth, but the men who sought to try him. They were really in the dock. For Christ turned the dock into the judgment seat of God. By his very presence, by his inward character, by the kind of person he was, the way he reacted to all the injustice and cruelty, the hatred and the wickedness, he turned their trial of him into a, a revelation of divine love and grace. For his trial was in fact the confrontation between two kinds of men, two concepts of service. I'll say that again. His trial was really a confrontation between two kinds of men, two orders of men, two concepts of service. We see the servant of the Lord, whose very life from its beginning to its end was a sacrificial giving of himself, who had offered nothing but love, compassion, grace, truth, purity, in his unceasing service, face to face with another concept of service altogether. For the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, for the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, service was a matter of position, of title, of outward pomp and glory, outward show, 
It was a matter of prestige, of being connected with the right people, with the right families, of having the correct pedigree, of having the right outward training and qualification. For them, service was a matter of military might and political ingenuity. You judge service according to this concept, not by what you give, but by what you get. Their idea of service was the number of people under them, the number of minions they had, the legions they could command, the authority that they could exercise, the fabulous titled residences they could live in. That was their concept of service. It was all outward, formal, official, a thin veneer which covered a violent and ugly self-centeredness. The principle of their service, in a word, was self. It was that principle which powerfully motivated and energized them into their, in their whole attitude to Christ. Self-interest, self-preservation, self-protection, self-advancement. They couldn't help themselves. They'd either got to liquidate Christ or they would be themselves destroyed. Their own advancement, their, their own way, their, as it were, their own progress was dependent completely upon their getting rid of Christ. Christ, by his very presence, by his very character, the truth he was and the truth he proclaimed by the kind of service we see in him, spelt the end for them. There could be no coexistence between these two concepts of service, between these two kinds of men. They had got to get rid of him. The confrontation uh, could have ended no other way. Judas could have done no other than sell or betray Christ. Think about that. Think about it. Judas could have done no other than sell or betray Christ. Why? Because of this principle of self-centeredness. That's why. There was no other way out of it or through it. The Sanhedrin could now do no other than murder Christ, albeit dressed up with the appearance of legality. They could do no other. They had to protect themselves. They had to preserve themselves. They had to preserve their empire, their whole concept of service. They could do no other.
Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, could do no other than wash his hands of the affair and sign the death sentence. Oh, and how he tried in the end to get Christ released. Why couldn't he? He could have so easily stood up and been counted. Why couldn't he do it? Because of self-centeredness. It was self-protection, self-advancement that made Pilate sign the death warrant, although he washed his hands of the affair. In so doing, they forever exposed the real nature of fallen man. The inevitable failure and breakdown of that kind of person. Oh, I'll repeat it again. In what they did, Judas, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, they exposed forever 